Please pronounce your name correctly for me. Sure. Leah Sobsey, which actually does get butchered quite a bit. In my mind, I have often put an M in like Sobsey, yes. something like that. Like I've done that quite often in my mind. There's lots of different variations, yeah. but yes. Yeah. Okay. And we were at school together at San Francisco Art Institute way back in the day. So this is our first catch up in 19 years. Yes. And you graduated with photography, correct? I did. Mm -hmm. Okay, because I started in photography. I, I remember you that. were in the class. Yeah, you were in the class that I, that Linda Connor sort of shamed me out of the <laughs> photography program. Uh, and I moved moved over to new genres. Right, you were at the early early days of the new genre concentration there. Yeah. I, it was great. I, I, in the end, it was my. I feel like it was my best education. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, we had a small, a really small cohort. So even though you were in new genres, I feel like we crossed over a lot. Oh, yeah. I still worked with photography and the photographic medium, mm -hmm. even though I was in a different uh, program on the overhaul. But yeah. And so one of the things actually that for the listeners that I often do is, uh, how did you even become creative? So like, was it your family? Was it some early childhood experience, some trauma? Like, how did you even come to being artistic and creative? I don't think there was a sort of pivotal moment. I think I have sort of runs deep in my family. So my mom was a for is a former dancer and now writer. My brother is a playwright and novelist. And then grandparents on each side were artists. So my grandmother um, on my dad's side was fairly successful poet and painter and sculptor. And my mom's, and then actually her father was a famous cantor. So he came from Kiev and moved to the States to be a cantor, which is in the synagogue. So. So he was a singer and pianist. So he sort of got brought to the United States for that role. And then as far as photography, my, my mom's father was a self-taught photographer. So my, my Zadie, as I called him, so my grandfather. And he, he had a darkroom set up in his basement and did pretty extraordinary, made extraordinary photographs. And I think in different circumstances really could have made a career of it, but Instead, it was a really serious hobby for him. So I, it's just sort of always been present. I don't, there's no moment. It was like, oh, of course, that's just what you do in life. You make art. You didn't mention where you grew up, though. I grew up where I'm living now. I grew up in Chapel Hill and Durham in North Carolina and moved away. It's sort of one of those things where I thought, well, there's, I'm not, there's no way I'll come back home. And then sort of lived all over, you know, went to college, went to undergrad in North Carolina, Guilford College, small Quaker school, and then found my way to the main media workshops, um, studying photography there, and then got a job in New York, working for a you know, photographer as an assistant and running a studio, and then to San Francisco. So these days you work with, you still work with um, alternative processes and more traditional processes, and you're combining them a lot with digital. 
you know, how is that working for you these days? I mean, are, do people still enjoy uh, working with those uh, mediums as much as they used to? You know, what's, what's your sort of experiences these days with them? Yeah. I mean, I can speak to that both as an artist and also as a, you know, as a teaching artist. So, you know, there was this real shift that happened, uh, you know, a number of years ago when digital came onto the scene and students flocked to digital and numbers dropped in darkroom classes and, you know, programs were closing their darkrooms all over the country. And I was really adamant about holding on to hours and, now I'm seeing the shift come back. So students are really wanting to have that sort of tactile experience and process-based, you know, they've grown up with screens. And so I think that sort of departure from that feels really great. And I've never left it. I mean, it's always been a part of my practice. I think the difference is that I've now obviously integrated digital into it. So, you know, the way I always think about it is that it's just another tool and I'm, less interested in many ways. I mean, yes, my work is process-based, but I'm I'm less interested in terms of how I am getting somewhere and more interested in just the making of it. So, I mean, it, it, in many ways, it's like I almost don't, I feel sort of uncomfortable calling myself a photographer. It's like I use that as a tool, but ultimately I'm just making work. I'm just making art. And so all of those tools are ways to sort of, whether it be digital, whether it be some form of alternative process or some kind of in between, it's just, aren't we lucky to have all of these amazing tools that we can now use and keep expanding on? Oh yeah. I took photography off my title a while ago as well. Like the, the term photographer, I mean, it sounds really snobby, I guess, when I say it like this, but like, it's, it's kind of overused at this point. Like everybody's a photographer, everybody has a camera in their pocket so like that's not very descriptive of sort of what i do so like trying to find another word or an additional context to give to it to be more descriptive about the fact that i i use photography but i'm not necessarily photographer right it's just integrating something else into your practice yeah i mean i I sort of i I thought i was going to be a photographer and I make photographs, but it's certainly not, and it's at the root of my practice and process, but ultimately it sort of morphs into something else, I think, as I move through the, the, the making stages. So, you know, I'm working more in kind of installation-based work now and using photographs at the core. It will often start with the photograph making a photograph of something, but ultimately it will look very different in the end in terms of how it's installed. Yes. All the butterflies being. Yeah. Right. Butterflies. I'm working through a new piece right now using mirrors, which is interesting because I'm going back to thinking about graduate school and my thesis show, which was using mirrors and transparencies. And like most of us kind of just, you know, going back to those things that just keep circulating and, kind of finding their way back in. So it looks really different now, but, and it, they're, they're digital as opposed to those codoliths I was making, which now I'm like, God, what a nightmare. But, but I love yeah, codoliths. no, they're great. It's great. But like the thought of going into the dark room and making these enlargements on film and there is something about the ease of digital, which is just very joyful. I agree, but I do miss like the, the, 
practice, the the skill and craftsmanship that came into the darkroom. Yeah, absolutely. And I, I still think it's important to teach it. I mean, it's antiquated and people really aren't using 35 that much. But I, again, feel like as part of sort of doing due diligence to the medium, it's like this, still learning that. And it is it is still practical to learn to shoot film and like the mechanics of the camera and like anything, just starting at the basics. So we still, you know, I still have students work in the dark room and they love it. I mean, they're, they, they get hooked on it immediately. You know, that, that's still that magic moment of watching a print appear for the first time. And, you know, with my own work, it is still so much about the process. I mean, I am going through these like laborious, you know, sort of processes of coding papers and trying to make prints on, you know, leaves and these things that are both like strenuous and very hands-on. And so for me, that is still about the making. And there's a really different way, I think, of of getting to an image based on my f- sort of physical interaction with it. Well, you also have a background in anthropology. So a lot of your work is very sort of researched and sort of uh, sort of academically intellectual. Like you, you have very, you do a lot of, it's not just necessarily like pretty pictures, but there's, it's a lot more about the concept, the background, the history, the, you know, yeah. the, the context in the, the grander scheme of things versus just making a beautiful object. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, they can exist as beautiful objects, but ultimately I'm more interested in the history and also where, what that sort of tells us in present day. I mean, a lot of my work now is sort of is thinking about and based in, you know, environmental changes. And yeah, I mean, there's, there's all kinds of issues that revolve around those butterflies that are beautiful objects on the wall, but ultimately what is at the base of that? So you know, issues of climate change, issues of borders, issues of, of environmental law, politics. So all of those are kind of in the mix of, of that piece that, that can live as this beautiful object. But if you dig a little bit, there's, there's all of this history that's, that's in there. And, you know, contemporary issues of what were sort of these catastrophes that we're facing. Yeah, it could easily be like your next one is a virus and all these kinds of stuff. I mean, I, I feel like it, it's hard because like, because this pandemic now is sort of hitting everybody across the world, I feel like there's going to be this insane wave of art, sort of almost like its own time period mm-hmm. that's coming of everybody doing reacting work to pandemics and viruses and all this yeah. kind of stuff. Like, yeah. you know, in the next five years, I feel like we're going to see a lot of artwork about isolation and viruses and all this kind of all these topics and i'm not looking forward to that no and i'm i'm certainly not interested in making that work i'm pretty committed to the work that i've been making but i you know i have a long-term project that i'm was getting started it's been slowed down a little bit by this pandemic but again thinking about you know climate change and working show that was supposed to be in 20 22 at the Harvard Museum of Natural History and working with plant specimens. So a lot of the work is about working with these historical archives and specimens and then thinking about it in a, you know, this sort of present day, what what can we learn from that history? What do we need to understand and, and where are we now? So like, you know, working with images 
with specimens that are in severe decline and trying to understand why and how and then what what can we do and i'm interested too you know in sort of taking the work outside of maybe the traditional gallery and putting it in a space like the natural history museum that is going to get a much broader audience and really inviting more people into the conversation and i think for me that has always been this sort of disconnect and I'm figuring out how to connect that a little bit more. Audiences are sort of like the crux of, well, quite honestly, probably this whole podcast and all of my issues. Like, you know, I mean, in the old days you made like, let's say you lived in, well, you lived in Greensboro. It's reasonably big. So like Charlotte would be the big hub near you kind of thing. And like, it would be sort of regional and then the regional would expand you bigger and all that. But like these days with social media and the internet, it's like, there's almost so many possibilities that yeah. it's, it's stymieing like to the point of like, how, which do, how do you even choose where to approach or how mm -hmm. to whatever, like you almost need to, like you said, like have a very specific audience in mind in mm -hmm. order to know how to effectively achieve your goals kind of thing because if you just say i want to exhibit my work well there's just millions of possibilities all over the world so sure. you know having that sort of uh, interest that you have so that 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 choice of like having cause related things and the idea of trying to cross the boundaries of the the white cube into new locations and things mm -hmm. like this is probably i would assume to your advantage yeah, I think so. I mean, I think it goes back to those questions of sort of why are you making the work and then who who do you want to see it, right? Like the very basics of, of, of those kind of conversations. And again, I mean, you know, this project I'm collaborating with a friend of mine who's a scientist and she studies plant decline and I'm working with a researcher who is doing the writing aspect of it. So kind of bringing people together in our own expertise and then thinking about something in a much larger context than just me reacting or making something in response to. So it's a, it's a fuller conversation and I think it invites more people into it. And it's something that I've been doing more of is working collaboratively. But that's also something that I think is tied to being a teacher. I think that that's a huge thing, uh, you know, in academia of like crossing between colleges and crossing between ideas. Like they love that stuff. The last school I was at, they, they like, if I put in a proposal saying like, Hey, I want to go make these beautiful photographs. They'd be like, yeah. And they didn't really support it. They didn't really fund it. But as soon as I said, Oh, I'm going to work with this person in the so-and-so department and we're going to collaboratively do this thing. Suddenly they're like, Oh my God, that's a fabulous idea. Right. Even though it's exactly the same idea. Sure. Right. Yeah. This sort of cross-discipline research is, is yeah. Very exciting in that world. Mm -hmm. But I mean, I also think it's just sort of naturally how I work. It's, you know, it's one of those things that I working in my own little bubble is less exciting to me than expanding. And that has also been, you know, something that has happened in the last, oh, I don't know, five to 10 years where I'm, I'm just more interested in reaching out and sort of figuring out how to come to these, particularly because I'm working in kind of arenas that I am not fully familiar with. So yes, I can talk about the art side, but the science side, I would rather go to an expert than trying to dig through all of that and make sense of it. And again, I'm interested in, in having a broader audience. It can get a little frustrating being in just the gallery wall. 
are you represented right now? I'm not, no. And it's not a, it's not something that I've ever actively tried to do. I think that I have been invested in my own art practice and in teaching. And so things, I mean, I work hard for the things that have happened, but I'm also not actively seeking representation. And I don't even know if that system still makes sense anymore. So I think that in many ways, there was a moment where I thought, I really need to be doing this. I really need to find a gallery and have representation. And now I'm not so sure that that's the case anymore. I think that we can be showing work, making work. There's so many different avenues to get your work seen. Like you said, that it can be overwhelming, but I'm now finding more people finding my work. That doesn't mean that gallery representation also wouldn't be great, but it, it is less important to me now. Uh, yeah. Well, I feel like also, I mean, beyond the fact that the art world in and of itself is probably a little bit broken before the civil pandemic stuff, after this, God yeah. knows what it's going to turn into. going to be left. Yeah, yeah, these sort of ruins that we'll have to sift through and see what's still standing. Things were already not working well. So, like, who knows if they're going to get worse or get better? Like, and who, what defines worse and better, but blah, 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 blah. So anyways, so both you and I seem to have left school and sort of gone down the teaching and academic paths. Like, how has that been for you as far as um, generally fulfilling, not fulfilling, aggravating, annoying? You know, I come from a family of academics. So my dad is a scientist and he's in academia. So it just not being on an academic schedule felt so foreign to me and I hated it so much that I was a little lost actually. And I was lucky enough after grad school to, to get a, you know, an adjunct teaching position without trying. It just sort of landed in my lap and suddenly that became who I was and what I was doing. And in many ways it has forced me to do a number of things that I don't think I would have done on my own, which is stay committed to making work because I have to. It's built into my job requirement. Staying really active in the field of knowing what's going on and what's out there so that I can inform my students, obviously. And I find teaching exciting in many ways. I mean, yes, it can get old to teach the same thing over and over again, but I, it does, I'm, I mean, it's cliche, but I am actually learning from my students all the time. I see them experimenting and that leads me to think like, oh, I need to try that. Or you know, I want to sort of figure out how I might adopt something that I see them experimenting with. And that happens quite a bit, actually. So it, I do think there is this sort of reciprocity of both putting sort of material out there and gaining it back from students. And now that I've been doing this for so many years, you know, I see them in successful ways, which is also great. I remember, I don't know how long it was or whether I just saw it on social media or something, but at one point you actually taught some courses at Maine, right? Yeah, a, while, a number of years ago I did. So it was full circle too, which was great. Well, I remember seeing that and, and I'll be blatantly honest, I was incredibly envious. Like, oh. <laughs> oh my God, to teach at Maine would be amazing. It, it is. I mean, it was dreamy. I haven't done it in a number of years just because my home life sort of took over. But yeah, I mean, I was a student there learning the basics of photography as a work-study student there in the mid-90s. Mid it was like 1996, I think. And then to sort of full circle come back and teach there felt really satisfying. And I think 
you know, I was really pushed into feeling like I had to prove myself in many ways. I remember, and this is always, this always comes up for me as both a teacher and a student that I had a teacher who didn't want to write me a recommendation for Maine. Who knows why, you know, I mean, it was, it was the most basic level class of a work study. You know, you're like paying to work there and get an education. And so uh, it forced me to really work hard. And I got in anyways without this teacher. And I, it's always in the back of my mind, both as this like, I'm going to do this no matter what anyone says, and also to really be supportive of my students. I mean, I'm incredibly available to students. <laughs> and I think, you know, it's, yeah, I mean, it's just like being a good human on the earth, you know, like trying to support other people and what they want to do and what they love. So, so it, it pushed me in ways that I only now sort of realize, oh yeah, that one moment, that was a pivotal moment. Like, yeah, I'll show you, you know, this is, this is what I want to do and made a career of it. So yeah, I mean, teaching is great. I'm on research leave this semester, which is like, you know, in the middle of a pandemic, great. Now I, I don't have to make those difficult choices and I can focus on my work. And like I said, probably, you know, making sure my, my kids know how to get on zoom and have classes. So. Yeah. I don't have any kids luckily at this point, so I don't have to worry about that issue. Yeah. But soon, soon I'll have some kids, but not yet. So. Yeah. Well, I will also say that having kids has forced me to be more productive. My time is, you know, I have such, it's so much more precious that I can get a lot more done now than I could prior to having kids because I know that that time is limited. And I also had kids a bit later in life and so had already sort of created this path for myself and this way of working. So when they entered the scene, I have twins, I have six-year-old twins. So when, <sighs> yes. <laughs> so when they entered the scene, I was in the middle of making a book and it was like, oh, just add one more, two more things. And, you know, and I just kept sort of plugging away. So it has been, you know, I mean, it continues to be a challenge, but also it's like, well, this is just part of life and you just figure it out. I've had guests in the past that talk about like issues of uh, sort of having children and then sort of potentially taking some time off for the children and then having difficulty getting back into the swing of things. Uh, specifically in general, this has been women in the arts. So like, was that in any sort of issues for you? You know, I, I really didn't take time off. It, it was, I mean, I was on, uh, I taught online for that semester and I taught one class online and those poor students probably didn't get much out of that experience that semester. But I went back, you know, my kids were born in September. I went back to work in January and it was sort of a blur. I don't remember much about it, but like I said, I was making a book of part of this project, Bull City Summer, and we were in the book phase of it. And so it was, it was total chaos. And, you know, you just, I sort of did the best I could and it was enough to make it work. But, you know, for me, I, and I, I listened to Amanda Marchand's podcast and which resonated with me about residencies because that is where I make my work. I mean, it, that for, for me as a parent and an educator, I cannot make work at home. It's impossible. And I need to disconnect from the everyday of life. So 
I will go do a residency, both be maybe in a sort of production state of something, but also this is sort of dreaming up new work. So I always go to a residency with a project in mind, and then I leave room to make a new project and just to experiment. So that's been vital for me in my practice. Otherwise, I don't, I can't imagine it would be impossible to think about like making lunches and doing laundry and doing all these things. And oh, by the way, how can I dream up something new and, you know, step away from that? So I usually do one or two residencies a year. Oh my God. I can't even apply for, I can't seem to find a residency at all. And you Uh, do one to two a year? I do. Yeah. I mean, I, I started doing them in 2006, I think. See, I don't even know how to approach them. Like I look at the applications. A, I often don't meet the criteria for what they want for whatever reason, whether it's age or gender or subject matter or medium, whatever. But oftentimes like I just find them I find them so vague. Like I mean Amanda was really great with her idea of sort of like why me, why now? Mm-hmm. Like I, I loved that idea and I think mm-hmm. that's a great way to think about how to approach it. And I have of course haven't done it since that time. But but like I've never understood what they want to know. Like when you write a a, a residency application, like what is it they want to know because my God, I could write volumes on myself, but they always limit it. They always, I hate the limitations. Yeah. Or it, dri- it drives me nuts that they like say like, oh, explain your entire project in 500 words or less. Right. And I think it is about, you know, I, I mean, they want you to have some sense of what you want to do. At the same time, once you get somewhere, there's no oversight. And that is the beauty of it. It's like you get there and you get to sort of make what you want. For most residencies, that's been my experience, that it's really just a time and a place to to do whatever you need to do, whether that's just read, rest, you know, work on a project for a show. You know, I've done, it's it's been all of those things for me. So that idea of kind of separating from your everyday life and having this beautiful piece of time to just again for me it's about dreaming like I can't I can come back from a residency and be in production mode and you know sit down and and make things based on whatever show that I'm working on or a book but but the dreaming up part cannot for me just cannot happen at home and I think you know with applications once you have the meat of what you're working on, like whatever project you want, then it's, you're just sort of shopping that around to different places. So, you know, it's like, here's this, I'll tweak it a little bit for this particular area or this region of the country or this setting. But the, the kind of framework is the same, like here's the meat of the project. And then, you know, like I said, you kind of shape it for what you need it to be. Okay, okay, but I want to know more about this because this is an actual big fascination for me. I really do want to do, participate in these, but do you apply for, and then, of course, do you go to grants or residencies that are funded or not funded? Like, how do you even sort of work? Like, Because, like, I know some of them you have to pay a monthly fee or a weekly fee. Some yeah. don't. Like, So, like, what's the, what's the choices you make when you are looking at an application? Well... It's a few things. I mean, I tr- I don't generally want to go somewhere I have to pay. So <laughs> that being said, I have done that before. And because I'm in academia, 
I can apply for grants that will cover the cost of those residencies. So I, I do feel lucky in that regard. But I try to go to a place where it's either there's no cost or there's a stipend. There was a residency that I went to a couple of years ago that was had just gotten a grant to fund a few sort of parents so that you would get a stipend to cover childcare back home. That was really great. And that I think is ongoing for them now. They've sort of built that in, but that was the first year that they had that that grant, that stipend. So I was able to feel like I could leave a little bit more easily, knowing that my kids had, you know, this sort of built in childcare that 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 the residency, you know, thought was important. But yeah, I mean, there are so many different models for it. Ultimately, I, like I said, I don't want to pay for it. I think, you know, nobody wants to pay nobody for wants it. Wants to pay for it. But there is one that I go to every year, which is phenomenal, Penland, which is in North Carolina, and that you do pay for, you know, lodging, and there's a studio fee. The studios there, they just built this brand new photo studio. It's an incredible place, and completely worth it. Oh, Penland is, is fabulous. I, I lived in Wilmington for yeah. about 10 years. So yeah, I know Penland very well. And I know a number of people who go up there for, yeah. for different projects and workshops and other things like this. Yeah. And they do a winter residency that I've been doing for the last couple of years, which is great. And I tend to, you know, before I had kids, I would go on these month long residencies. That's not really an option right now. So I'm also sort of forced to find one week, 10 days. I just upped it to two weeks last summer. So, you know, slowly I will build back up as my kids get older. But right now I'm limited in those in those residencies that kind of fit the criteria in terms of location and length of time that will work with my, my schedule. And now in the pandemic, now that there are no residencies really happening and I'm on research leave, I'm just making my own residencies. So I'm you know, booking an Airbnb somewhere a few hours away and and just going to make work. It's again, like it's critical in my practice. I actually just had a guest on my last one, uh, Colby Caldwell in mm-hmm. uh, Asheville, and he has a residency. He runs a residency program that he is running again oh, great. now. Okay. Yeah. I mean, I, I see them slowly opening back up, but I want something immediate, you know, I need, I have this limited time now. Yeah. And now I'm back to that place of having to pay for Airbnbs and support those residents, those like self-made residencies. So having something that is pre-prescribed would be great. Yeah, I mean, I'm married to a, a wife who is an accountant, and she doesn't understand this need for creative time and space. Uh, you know, so like a lot of the people who are not creatives, I don't know how to sort of separate those people. Like, you know, non-creative people, they they don't understand how we just need time and space, and it's yeah. not time and space necessarily to be working, but no. it's time and space to just be involved in thinking about or testing or trying or looking into or or failing at things like i need like i need a lot of time to make a lot of mistakes Mm -hmm. before i can even get to a project that i can work on yeah i sort of have this ongoing notebook now it's probably mostly in my head but of projects that i've been wanting to try or ideas and so eventually i start ticking those off like i go to a residency i'm like oh right three years ago i wanted to try this thing and so now is the moment to do this and often they do 
turn into something, something evolves out of that, even if it is out of a failure. But it is, you know, it has been this sort of running thing where it's like this long list of of ideas that I just keep kind of recirculating and, and even imagery. I mean, I think we all do this to a certain extent, but that I will have used 10 years ago that now suddenly is reimagined in a different format. And that, that continues to happen. And what used to feel like that was a failure. Now I understand is no, that's just, that's actually really critical. It's, it's sort of working through things. So that's, that's been an important lesson in all of this too, in terms of having time and space to, to make the work. Absolutely. Yes. I'm very process based, much like you are. I'm doing studio works where I'm collaging things and things Mm -hmm. like this. I'm Mm -hmm. doing decoupage and like layering and Mm. all kinds of stuff. And like now one piece of work can take me up to four months to finish. So like Mm -hmm. one image (laughs) take four months of work. So yeah, I get it. I get the process based working. Yeah, I I also feel like somehow parenthood maybe has dictated to a certain degree the kind of work that I make. So, you know, I shifted into cyanotypes. It was something that I could do at home. It was something that was short in terms of exposure. And I had been doing that prior to having kids, but it certainly has kept me able to, to, to make work at home and at residencies too, which during this pandemic, I've started a new project making chlorophyll prints because, you know, it's, it's easy. I have this whole kind of library of, of large negatives that I've used over decades and I'm just taking those out. And then that's, you know, an eight hour exposure. So I can go put that out in the morning, have a whole day with my kids and then come back. And here's this kind of this, this image to think about. And, you know, again, this is like, oh yeah, that was on my list of things to try years ago. And now here's this little opportunity to at least see what happens with it and what might grow out of it. Yeah, I know. And it, it it's to a certain extent, even like going back to like the grant writing and, and residencies and this kinds of stuff, like I will say I'm intimidated by the nature of like sort of having to write a grant for the idea of something I might do in the future, like mm-hmm. six months to a year to two years from now. I don't even know what I'm doing next weekend, mm-hmm. much less what I would be making in two years from now. And so I, oftentimes I'm a, a little intimidated by that and I'm scared that basically I'll pitch something or propose something for a grant or a residency. And then for some reason, either it fails or I fail at it or I pivot to some other complete different direction than what I originally wrote. Yeah. And then I'm scared that they'll be like, oh, you didn't do what you said you do. Well, and, uh, the thing is, I think that that's, that's actually part of, that's part of why you go to those things. That's part of what you're there to figure out. And also, I mean, this happens all the time in project-based work. It's like you start in one place that you think and you wind up in a completely different path, but you needed to go through those steps in order to get there. So I think it's the same with, with, you know, with grant proposals and with residencies that, I mean, it would be incredibly boring. I think if you just propose something and then made it right, like part of it is figuring out how to get there and that it might shift and change as you start working and learning. So I, I think that that's actually really important to, to have those shifts. And I think in residencies, for sure, that that is both expected and probably encouraged that it's, you know, that that is why you are there. 
Okay, I have a stupid technical question when it comes to like going to residencies in particular. Mm -hmm. Do you take all your equipment, resources, whatever with you, or do you just like locally source it? Because like I'm thinking about the fact that like when I was in the Middle East versus in America versus in Europe, mm -hmm. the literal resources, so like whatever's at an art supply store or a photo supply store is very different. And so like, I'm like, well, wait a minute, I, if I go to a residency in whatever, Norway or Iceland or you know, Greece, should I pre-buy all my equipment and take it with me or do you get it there? So it depends on the residency. A residency that I did years ago was at the Grand Canyon at the part of the national park system. So I spent a month there and I purposely drove across country because I wanted to bring all the equipment. I knew I would have nothing. I would have a room to work in, in the house that I was staying. So I also knew that I was going to be more site specific. I was going to work in the archives of the national park and that I was going to make cyanotypes because I would have the sun available. So I am thinking about the location that I'm at, the project that I would be able to execute there, and then the resources that I might need to bring with me. So that, you know, I, again, I chose to drive there one, because I wanted to have a road trip and two, because I wanted all of those. So I wanted to have those supplies. And similarly, two years ago, I did a residency in Maine where, you know, you get there's four artists, you got a beautiful cabin to yourself, looks out on a lake, and you cook all your own meals. And so I just packed my car and I drove out there with everything that I would need. So I brought, you know, an Epson printer, I brought my laptop, I brought a scanner, I brought my camera equipment and photographic supplies. And then of course, you know, there's Amazon. So I would just get stuff delivered when I would need it. As opposed to Penland, which is really their facilities, their photo facilities are incredible. So they have this brand new building with everything that you need. So I just brought the materials that I want, want to work with and didn't need to worry about the, the equipment stuff, the technology. So it really depends. And, you know, I've been to residencies where all your meals are cooked for you and you have shared meals and experiences or where it's just isolation and you have solitude and you're just working, you know, more and more I'm interested in the solitude part because that is so lacking in my life. And that is really where I can disconnect if I'm having to sort of be on and check in with people and carry on conversations at certain times of day. It feels there's a beauty in that obviously, but it does feel uh, it can be too structured Last summer, I did a residency at the Hambidge Center, which is in Georgia, but right on the North Carolina border. And that they give you a, a house, a cabin in the woods. There's a studio space there, which is, you know, sort of a white box that you can work in. And they prepare meals for you, I think dinner for you four nights a week that you eat all together, but there's maybe 10 artists. And then otherwise you're on your own. So it is, that was a sort of nice hybrid version of you have the solitude all day until dinner. And then, you know, three nights a week or three days a week, you're completely on your own. So that was, you know, I think there's so many different ways to approach what you're wanting to get out of a residency in terms of location, structure of it. Yeah, I went to the Vermont Studio Center, which is like summer camp for kids, you know, it's like, or for adults, it's like 60 artists, you eat every meal together, you know, and once you add in meals, you've got a few hours in between those to actually make work. And then you wind up socializing and, you know, swimming in lakes. So I, 
have that was great a number of years ago and now I'm I'm more interested in just kind of isolating and really getting stuff done or not in my own time. I agree. Yeah, that has really shifted for me. So, yeah, I mean I think and also, you know, there's residencies all over the world. So, they look very different depending on on where you are. Okay, yeah, that's another little pet peeve of mine. I don't know how much you listen to the podcast or not, but I gripe about this a lot, which is the the vocabulary that needs to be used in these. Like, it's because of the fact that I've lived in not only just in America, but I lived on the East Coast, the West Coast, and in Iowa, um, and then I've also now lived in the Middle East and the Europe. Mm-hmm. The vocabulary of how to even find a grant or a residency, the words are all very regional and localized. But then when you're going to propose things, vocabulary, like the one that I ran into early on that started me down the path of realizing this was um, mobility mm-hmm. um, like versus um, travel. Like So mm-hmm. a mobility grant is the same as a travel grant. Mm-hmm. So why are they using two different words for it? Mm-hmm. Why can't they just use one word for it? Uh-huh. So like when you know, when I do a Google search for a, a travel grant, I have to, to, to I have to use both travel grant and mobility grant, and there are actually other words for this. But even within that, right. collaboration. Yeah. Like this this is one that I ran into when I got to Europe. In Europe, collaboration means free. Mm. Basically, you're asking somebody to work for free. Oh, interesting. If you say the word collaborate. Huh. Yeah. Which means something entirely different here. Totally different in the US. Like right. collaborate means to work together right. equally. Right. And put equal amount of time, effort, and money into a project. That's collaboration mm-hmm. in America. But in Europe, a collaboration is where mm-hmm. one person basically asks somebody else to work for free. I wonder what the root of that is. Yeah, that's interesting. And so like there when it comes to like residencies and grants and all these other and even even proposing exhibitions and whatever like all these little vocabulary words can get exhausting to try mm-hmm. and figure out which one's the right one to use where and when yeah yeah well i think like with anything it's just the more you do it the more you know okay in this particular region this is what this means and here it means this but it sounds like you just need to do a residency <laughs> i would love to do a residency yeah. if there's anybody yeah. who runs a residency out there that, that would like me to apply i'm happy to apply yeah well yeah i don't i'm I, i'll be honest i look at residencies like every like three or four months and i'm like there are just so many a and i don't know which one to i don't know which one to apply for yeah and and then oftentimes, like the one the things that I run into is, is that I will like read through their list of criteria and I'm like, perfect, 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 perfect. And then I get to the last one and it says, you have to be under 35. Oh, huh. like, fuck. Okay. I'm out. Yeah, or perfect, 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 perfect. And then like the, you know, the last criteria is one that for some reason I don't meet. Uh-huh. So, like, so I find it a bit difficult to find ones a that like i fit perfectly Hmm. and then yeah beyond that it's just the time and the energy but i have been getting through this podcast and through the listeners and through the guests i've been hearing about a number of different ones that i can apply for and i I hope to get some but yeah i mean i would say the ones that i've gone to and applied for that i mean they have been in the states because that's what's doable right now I did do a residency in Mexico a number of years ago, but yeah, there haven't been sort of, they've, they're open to discipline. They're open to age there. I mean, it's, that is sort of the beauty of them. So I think, you know, 
it's it's just like you're doing, like asking friends, asking your network of people where they're going and and how that works. And, you know, getting online. I mean, I've, I spend a lot of time just cruising through websites, looking at, at good matches. And part of that, again, is sort of where do I want, where do I want to be? Where can I be? Where, you know, what, what makes sense in terms of length of time and finances? There's the sort of ones that I would strive for that are up here. And then ones that I sort of apply to that I'm like, okay, I, I have a pretty good shot of getting in here. And so this, you know, this is... Well, I mean- well, and that's part of it too. Like there's a hierarchy to residencies. Absolutely. Like there are, there are certain yeah. ones that are like on a certain level. And then there are other ones that are on, it's like, there's three tiers. Like there's this, you know, institutionally magnificent ones. Then there's sort of like the, the mid tier ones. And then basically I would put like the bottom ones are the ones you have to pay for. Right. So, yeah. So like pay for is the least desirable. Sure. The ones that are paid for are that middle tier. And then of mm-hmm. course there are the super prestigious ones that more or less you can't apply for, but they actually invite you. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think like anything, it's sort of giving yourself options. And I, like I said, I feel more and more if I can swing it financially or find grants or funding for it that I'm interested in making my own. I mean, when I started, I went to the Grand Canyon, spent a month there and that was an amazing residency, and that propelled me into this very long-term project that then became, you know, a book and gallery exhibitions and all of that. But I realized that that was not—I couldn't keep going on one-month residencies, and so I just started creating my own. I created a residency at the Everglades for myself for a week. I created a residency in Acadia National Park for my. So part of it is just figuring out, well, what what am I working on and where do I need to be and how do I structure that to make that happen? And again, because I know it's critical for me to make work, it just feels now like, well, I'll just figure it out. I'll just make it happen however I need to. Yet non-creative people would call that vacations. Right. I'm 100% not vacationing. This I know. I would love to go on an actual vacation. I mean, I can't remember the last time I really went on a vacation because it always is tied to work, really. I mean, I'll go to a conference, which is, you know, oh, it's great. It's in California, but I'm working. I'm, I'm there with students. I So, yeah, I mean, I, I, I sort of have just brushed that off. It's like, you know, that's fine. Vacations are overrated. I don't think they're all that amazing. <laughs> Like, I mean, you can only sit by the pool and have so many drinks. Sure. Like, one thing I was wondering about was how you got your book published. I was invited to participate in a project called Bull City Summer. And it was a documentary project that Sam Stevenson, who produces these different documentaries, began. And he asked if I would participate. And so it was a group of photographers and writers. And we spent a season at the Durham Bulls, which is, you know, this minor league baseball team in Durham, North Carolina. There's and a whole movie about that. There's them. a whole movie about it. And so there were a couple of us that were local, myself included, and then national artists. So Hank Willis Thomas participated, Hiroshi Watanabe, Alex Soth. So it was this interesting kind of very diverse group of, of 
artists and writers coming together. And we each, the beauty of that project was that we each really got to tell the story that we wanted to tell. And somehow it all made sense in this grand scheme of a book and as a museum show. So it, it traveled to a couple museums. So that book was published by Daylight. And I got to know Michael Itkoff and Taj Four who run Daylight. And at that time they were based in Hillsboro. I think now they're both in New York and in California. But after that book came out in 2013, they approached me to see if I wanted to make a book with them. And I agreed to do it. It's, you know, their model is a tricky one because you have to partly pay for that. So that seems more and more the trend where you, you know, they put in and you put in. So it's this kind of collaboration. And for me, it was a no-brainer. I felt like in academia, I really needed to make a book. And also, I had been working on a project for a decade, and I was ready to kind of see it come to life in book form. And it forced me to think about it in a much different way than I had been. And so I did it. And I figured out, I'll just, you know, I'll raise money, and I'll make it happen. I'll take out a loan, whatever. And okay, wait, wait, slow down, slow down. How did you do that? How did you raise money? <laughs> well, let's see. I started a GoFundMe site. That's what I, I wanted to know. Resold copies of the book and had different levels where you could kind of buy into it. Okay, the, wait, wait, slow down. Because okay. that whole process yes. intimidates the shit out of me. Yeah. Okay. Like, uh, like uh, I am so petrified. I, I, I have. I guess I have this weird fear of failure, probably. So, mm. like, I'm horribly petrified of putting it out there and saying I'm producing this thing, and I have this fear that basically nobody's going to support it. Yeah. Well. Which to me looks embarrassing. Sure. I mean, I think you reach out to people that you know you're going to have support from, and then they pass that on. And so it's, you know, yeah, I mean, it, I don't know any of those people. Okay, well, <laughs> yes, you do. Of course you do. No, you I don't. Just, no, no, I really don't. Well, they're out there. I'm sure there are supporters of you out in the world. I'm so bad with keeping in contact with people. It's ridiculous. No, no. I mean, yeah, I. My, my moving throughout my life has made it very difficult, or, or I shouldn't say it has made it difficult. I have chosen poorly and not been active enough in keeping contact with people. Like yeah. that was, it was obviously my choice. I could have worked harder at it. I sure. didn't. And I believe well, it's hurt me horribly, but so be it. Yeah. I mean, it's also not too late. You know, I mean, that's, that's what the internet is for that's <laughs> what we're doing right that's now what we're doing right now yeah. yeah we've reconnected you are we are now networked yeah so go fund me yeah so i did a GoFundMe. they in some ways are also working for you i mean it it allows you to send like i said send it out to your kind of core network which then can expand as as those people send it out to people that they're in their network so i pre-sold a number of books. I don't even know. A hundred books, maybe, which was helpful. Was it an edition? How many did you produce? Give us some, some like. Yeah, so they produced five hundred. I think that's right. To be honest, I was making this book with young kids, and it really is a blur. It was one of those things, and the turnaround is very tight. So I had a year to make this book, which is very short in in book life and in fact it was 
in reality much shorter because it was a year till the book came out. So, you know, it was maybe half of that time. So the book designer, Ursula Dam, is in New York. So I'm sending things back and forth with her. We're having phone conversations. The printer, I think they switched printers partway through. The printer was in Turkey. So I would have to get overnight, you know, I mean, just materials back, proof them and then overnight them. So the whole experience was very, was very quick. And in hindsight, I would really have appreciated to have slowed that down. And, and if I did it again, I would really slow it down just to be more kind of careful about some of those choices. With this particular book, I kind of already knew the layout that I wanted. I, I had, because I had been working this, with this material for so long, and Ursula was an amazing designer, so I would give her ideas, and she went with most of them. She made very minor s- sort of switches. But just for my own kind of process, because I am so process-based in my work, it felt it felt rushed. And that is really their timeline. You know, I mean, they're trying to make money. So they are trying to churn out X amount of books a year. During that time, I I pre-sold a number of books and had some prints that I was selling, you know, it's like these different tiers. And it wasn't enough money to cover the cost. So I still had to put in my own money. And did I make that back? No. But am I glad I made this book? Yes, absolutely. I think it really helped me enter a, a sort of a different way of thinking about my work in the world. It connected me to m- more people immediately. And part of what happens with, with Daylight is that, you know, you're working with a publicist that that they retain. And so she was very helpful in terms of getting the work out there, which I, to me, that that is the hardest part to think about. It's like, I'm making this work. I think it's relevant. How do I get it out into the world? And to have somebody else take that on was incredible. And now I know, obviously, you can pay someone a lot of money to do that, but it was built into that system. And so, you know, I had different places pick it up. So like hyperallergic did a spread, Audubon did a spread, you know, the telegraph did a spread. So it was putting me in in view of places that I wouldn't have normally just stumbled across or they wouldn't have stumbled across my work. So it was more intentional in that way. Yeah, I mean it did open up opportunities for sure, I think, in terms of having the book out in the world. What about like social media and that? Because you're talking about publicity and all this kind of stuff. Like, do you use social media? Do you not? How do you use it? Do you like it? Yeah. You know, I got on social media because I remember the day I had a student, John Reed, in the early mid 2000s, I guess, who kept saying, Oh, you need to get on Facebook. I was like, I am never doing that. That's a total waste of time. I have no interest in sharing my life with people in that way. And he basically signed me up and I realized two things. One, it was a way for me to connect with students and share opportunities with them. And now I have figured out how to use it a little bit more for my own, just for promotion, you know, sort of putting my work out there. 
I remember like my memory of you, like let's say about 10 years ago, maybe a little longer was that you posted a lot of um, critiques and exhibitions of your students uh, mm-hmm. on Facebook and stuff for a long period of time. So like we, we as your supporters were seeing what you were teaching and what your students were achieving and mm-hmm. things like this. Like that was how I saw you using it at one point. Yeah. And I still do that. I mean, I still feel like it's a way to promote their work and show the world what my students are doing, which in turn is a way to show what I'm doing. I am less on Facebook now. It drives me crazy. I'm, I post a little bit more on Instagram than I do Facebook, but I certainly, if it's about my own work, I'll put it on both. And I'm not on Twitter. It just feels like one more thing to keep up with. I, you know, I can't, I just, it's too many things. So yeah, I mean, it, it also has really connected me in ways to different networks. So even during this pandemic, and we all as, you know, academics had to suddenly switch online, I'm a part of these academic groups, which have been invaluable in terms of resources and sharing information. So I do use it in ways that will help me. (laughs) And I have figured that out over the years and help my students. So and I use it a lot. I mean, for for again for creating networks so finding residencies finding show opportunities there are sites that i follow for that just for that reason so both for my own work and also to share with students so it has connected me in a much broader way in that respect and i've been doing this project i don't even know if you could call it a project but on instagram you know you have your regular posts then you have your stories so i've been since the beginning of the pandemic every day posting photographs in this in my stories that just sort of show the everydayness of what this looks like in this kind of isolation or family perspective so who knows what that will or won't turn into but that's been something that again has sort of kept me just seeing and making on a daily basis that I don't know that I would ever do anything with whether it's these kind of snapshots of everyday life or these you know I I run for sanity. So, you know, I'll go into the woods and I'll run six miles and that will keep me sane. And so maybe I'm documenting that based on like also, you know, this crazy life with my kids at home. So it's these little kind of snap, sort of snapshots of that. And that has, again, it's a different way of making work than if I'm going to go to a residency and really hunker down and really sort of get involved in a time-consuming process-based way of working. Well, see, and that's something that I find interesting that I feel like is more common now than was, let's say, when we were in grad school kind of thing, so 20, 30 years ago, that a lot of us make a lot of different things. So like you're talking about how like you, so you have your hardcore research stuff that you're doing for exhibitions, but you're also doing this, working on this other thing that you might turn into something. And then you probably mm-hmm. have another project that you are yeah. just sort of toying around with that you might turn into something else. That's probably using a completely different subject matter and a completely different Absolutely. medium and yeah. all this. Like, I feel like this is becoming more and more popular that or not popular, but more and more common mm-hmm. that artists are working on multiple projects using multiple different mediums or disciplines for the the potential of maybe evolving or growing or changing or 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 condensing so like maybe they all come together into something yeah absolutely i mean i have two different collaborations that i'm currently working on which are long-term collaborations 
I have about four or five different projects that I am working with that depending on where I am or what I'm doing, I will keep coming back to. And I am somebody that needs to have an exhibition lined up in order to make work. So I'm always one step ahead where I am trying to both be in the moment of making, but also lining something up so that I have an output to, you know, this work that I'm making to have it to manifest in some way. Yeah, I mean, I think it's important to be experimenting, testing, and then also having something actually come to fruition and, and, and have a life of its own. You know, oftentimes I will make work and put it up on the wall and then it suddenly almost doesn't feel like it's mine anymore. I sort of walk away from it and think, fine, that's up, that's done. It has its own life now. And so, yeah, to me, that's critical of having these, I mean, it's just a way that I work, like multiple projects going on. And because I'm working more collaboratively now that I have these kind of internal projects that I'm, that are always kind of marinating and twisting and turning and then I'm coming back to you. And then I have these other projects where I'm working with other people. And so it's a different timeline. It's a different accountability and it's a different audience for the most part. Yeah, I just feel like it's, it seems like sort of like it's more common. Like I remember in the old days, it was like, if you're a photographer, you take pictures. That's it. Like you yeah. do your thing. Like I hear about more people working sort of between mediums more and between even concepts more. So like they have one project that is very, let's say, high intellectual, and then they have another project that's very aesthetic or technical mm -hmm. kind mm -hmm. of thing. Um, so it just seems like it's becoming more and more common, which I don't see as a problem. I just an observation. I think you're right. And I wonder if some of that, I mean, I think some of that is because the tools have changed that we just have more resources and yeah, i also cheaper easier yeah and i also think that you know having access to the web has is a good thing right but it also means that we are our focus is all over the place and so i do think somehow culturally that is tied to that it's like we can be doing this and then we can run over here and look at this and try this and so you know there is there is a beauty in that. There is also this sort of frenetic way of, of, of being. And I, you know, going back to that, the residencies that I, that I find to be the most sort of powerful and successful are the ones where they don't, where I don't have Wi-Fi where I'm living and I have to work to go and do the research that I want to, you know, if it's, if I'm doing a research-based project, then I have to walk up to the main cabin or I have to drive somewhere to get it. And so I am so much more productive and so much happier, really, when I have detoxed from that and and taken a step back. So there is both something that is incredibly productive about having this device here and being able to, to go all over the world in an instant. And there is something that is like, it, it, it's critical for me and probably all of us, right, to remove ourselves from that and to focus a little bit more. Absolutely. Thank you very much for your time. Thank you. It's been you. fun catching up. Yes, absolutely. Mm -hmm.